my model to success has always been trying to outwork people around me. It's just do what they're not willing to do. This is the Yield Coach Show, episode 38. Hey everybody, this is your coach Ian Brown. A few announcements, Yield Coach Capital has opened its doors to investors looking to multiply their money while working with yours truly and our varsity investment team. We recently closed our 170 acre Gainesville, Florida industrial track and our limited partner investors are on pace to make two and a half times or more on their money. That opportunity is gone, but don't miss the next one. Be sure to join our investor list and never miss a deal again. You can join our investor list by the portal, which is in the show notes of this podcast. It's in our Instagram bio link, and you can also do it at yield-coach.com. If you join our investor list, we will get you the free gift, 107 questions to ask a deal sponsor, and a discount to our employee to entrepreneur video course, which is packed full of information and case studies to kickstart your investment success. Now is your time to take the field. I am your host, Ian Brown. Every episode, we bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, thought leaders, and inspirational guests ready to open up, share their story, the good, the bad, the ugly, so you can learn lessons, gain advantages, and accelerate your success. Very excited about today's guest. We have Mr. Mikey Taylor in the house. How's it going? Thanks for having me. It's going great. I'm about to brag on you for a minute. All right. Mikey is a retired professional skateboarder that turned pro at 19. Went from making 800 bucks a month to six figures at the age of 24. He co-founded St. Archer Brewery Company, which was bought by Miller Coors in 2015. That allowed him to start Commune Capital. They manage over 200 million of real estate with a concentration in self-storage and apartment buildings. And damn, that's pretty cool. Mikey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so 20 years, 20 years summed up in three seconds. It makes it sound like you're like efficient and doing things. I know. Well, we're um, if we're not, we're within a year. I don't know. I was I was class of two thousand. I think just based on oh, your yeah. bio. Okay, yeah. so we're very close in dem in demographic. Um, you you just have a cooler bio than me. <laughs> it's I like having guests that are like similar in age, so I can so I can feel like I need to like grow and reach and do more. So thank yeah. thanks for coming on. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'm hanging on to the millennial generation tailwind. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because if you like Google our age, like class of 2000, we're, we're kind of like a cusp. I'm sure officially we fall into a bracket, but I know we're kind of like a bleed over age. So, yep. um, yeah, I'm only, got, I'm only, I'm only partially woke. We got, we got bootstraps and tech at the same time. Nice. Bootstraps with some feelings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to, uh, I, I would kick myself if we didn't jump back into these, uh, I mean, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but take us back to these 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 skateboarding days, turning pro at 19. I mean, I don't get asked guests stuff like that very often. How, I assume you grew up skateboarding, had a natural proclivity, or maybe you were just a grinder. But tell us about this this journey in your younger years, um, turning pro. Yeah, I uh, I was a so I'm I've always been coordinated, but I wasn't like a just spewing talent. Like I, I my my model to success has always been trying to outwork people around me. It's just do what they're not willing to do. Uh, but you know, when you're young, you, you don't have that outlook. I just love skateboarding. Uh, I wanted to perfect it. And it was so difficult that it paired well with my personality, which is I am super into things when they're hard. The second I figure them out, I lose interest and then I move on. And with skating, I just couldn't ever get there. 
and why I think it grabbed my attention for so long. And then eventually, you know, I, I started skating when I was 12 or 13, 16. I start getting pressure from my parents to start working. Uh, I don't want to, I wanted to keep skating. So I basically figured out a way to get companies to give me free product, uh, made a little video of myself, sent it out to basically every company. And I had three companies that started giving me shoes, clothes, and skateboards. And so for the next two years, I would have everything I needed. And then if I needed money, I would sell some of the product to like friends or local skaters in the area. And then from there, uh, 18 is when I graduated, uh, got pressure to go to college. And right at that time, I started getting uh, or started to have an opportunity to start traveling as a as a skateboarder. And so I decided that I wanted to keep doing this for a few years. Uh, told my parents I wasn't going to go to college. They panicked. Uh, and, you know, uh, in the beginning, I thought it was going to be short term. I, I thought I was just going to skate for a few years and then go back to school. Because where I was, I fully believed that if you didn't go to school, you couldn't really make it. Uh, and then at that three-year mark, pro skateboarding or the skateboarding industry as a whole just took off. And then all of a sudden, it was like, oh, we can make money here and we have opportunity. And that was kind of the beginning of me figuring out how to succeed from a professional standpoint and then what to do after I'm done skating. Yeah. Um, so I, um, this is, you're going to make fun of me. I was a, uh, I was a rollerblader. <laughs> See, we would those... have got along back then. <laughs> I saw you almost spit out that coffee. That was funny. Uh, yeah. but you know, I'm going to, I'm going to confess, you know, I was, I was uh, you know, like I said, class of 2000 rollerblading was my dad uh, and I built a quarter ramp. Yeah. But, but yeah. I think when, when we did like the horizontal slats on the wood to make it curve, I think we like overcut it. So like, as you would skate up it, like your wheel would start to like drive through yeah. the wood. Um, yeah. What was the movie when we were kids? There's a rollerblade <laughs> airborne. Was that it? Oh uh, yeah. Airborne. That was a good one. Yeah. I like, yeah. And yeah. we, um, you know, I was in Florida, so we, we, I don't know if it's a Florida thing, but like no one, no one really went to ice rinks. I know now it's kind of funny. Like, lightning is a great hockey team and we have a hockey right. rink in jacksonville now but back then street hockey you know like we would if we couldn't get to the skate park or like build ourselves a um like a ramp or whatever we were doing we would just like play super rough street hockey with like not enough equipment and until we were bleeding and tired but that was like we loved playing street hockey okay so our, here's the days. here's the crossover when i was young before i started skating i was i played hockey and before ice i played roller hockey Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Was that, was that the only time you were found in rollerblades? I I ran rollerblades like right when uh what well, it was actually rollerblade was the brand, right? Well, it, it, was there a brand lightnings like the first rollerblades? Um I got those because just to play hockey. And I never yeah. got into the tricks. We just basically played hockey and then we had an ice rink around here and then I started playing ice. But I I, I was in rollerblades for years playing hockey. We um we love that and I think it was I think Rosie's was the brand, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Or Rosie's, they were either the brand or the wheels. But like the Rosie's ones were cool because the skate had um like a grind plate on the side of the boot and between the middle two wheels. So you could like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And then, and then um, we started to do, this is going to sound so cheesy. We started to do, Kona is the big skate park in Jacksonville. I think it's one of the oldest in the nation, or at least that's what I hear. It's It's big and it's got a lot of like poured concrete. And then it had not by today's standards, but back in the early 2000s, like a full-size vert ramp. I'm not positive mm. what that height would be, but it had straight vert when you look down for a few feet before it curved. And so my mom was terrified I was going to like kill myself. So I had like, I think it was like an oversized helmet. Like it wasn't, 
<laughs> and then I had those like slide on, um, they were like spandex with pads in them. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yep. had them underneath my giant, you know, cargo shorts. Yep. And so if I fell, I had like my, my butt and tailbone protected in this big old helmet. Didn't have a mouth guard, but it was hard to look cool. And the late 80s, the late 80s, early 90s were fun. It was a good time. Yeah. Um, I think the only other thing in that in that mindset that I, or that time period of my life, those um, and they were called soaps, and they were shoes with grind plates in the arch, mm. mm-hmm. and uh, you could buy them like at Zoomies or PacSun or wherever. And we almost got suspended because we got in so much consistent trouble for our cafeteria tables with like accordion up, and then they'd flatten them down. But when they were down, they were these beautiful like eight foot sections of like of table and chair. Well, not chair, bench. And we would, everyone had like the wax in their pocket. So like, you know, like you'd like wax the cafeteria table and then we'd, we'd come in with our lunches and we would just like run into the cafeteria and like grind plate slide down the cafeteria tables. And we just kept getting in trouble. And it got to a point where it's like, all right, we can't get suspended over this. We, we finally yeah. had to <laughs> tighten up. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> oh, but I, I swear I could probably talk about this stuff forever because I don't meet that many people that, that I can uh, chat with us about. But you know, with this, with this path of yours, how does somebody, I'm naive, how does somebody make six figures skating? Is it, is it primarily promotion or like paid events? I'm just curious, those, yeah. those that are making it in, in some of these pursuits, what that looks like. I'm naive yeah, to it. It's a good question. So basically you, uh, you do deals like, you know, sponsorship deals with companies. So you could have one sponsor in each category, you have shoes, skateboards, clothes, wheels, trucks, et cetera. And you would basically negotiate a deal that for a certain amount of time, you only you know wore or use their product, and then you would get a, a base salary. Uh, and then if you got to a point where you had your own signature item, so signature apparel or signature shoes, then you would start getting a royalty off all products sold. And then if you ever skated contests you know, and did well, that could be your... Uh, maybe additional income stream or, you know, if you ever had a photo in a magazine, you were wearing a shirt, you then opened up photo incentive, stuff like that. But the base was what we all focused on because we knew that was the floor. And then anything we did on top of that, that was icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. And it was a way, you know, as a young buck to like travel and see things. I, I assume a lot of the travel was. Uh, yeah. Co- so that covered. was, that part was really cool. Uh, you know, the golf industry or the surf industry, like a lot, a lot of these guys, they've got to pay their way there. So if they're not winning kind of from the tournament, they're, they're, they're coming out of pocket for it. For skateboarding, everything was covered. So I would travel six months of the year and not spend basically anything. And so during that time, especially when I was young, before getting married and having kids, that's when I was able to really do damage, saving money and even investing from a percentage standpoint that was that was a good time yeah and of course you know this is a a show for entrepreneurs <laughs> so yeah. you know it's interesting i saw in your and you kind of like researching you before the show and we're kind of reading through your bio investing in the stock market met with a financial advisor you're investing in self storage in 2005 which if you guys do the math that puts that puts Mikey in his early 20s so it's like that is <laughs> that's not super oh, I'd say a it's not super common and b it's even less common for a guy who's you know kind of living the early 2000s dream uh skating and getting paid and like you know, traveling so i'm just thinking if i had a life as cool as yours when i was that age there's i don't think there's any chance 
I would be saving anything. But so tell tell us how you ran. See, you're you're countercultural. Uh, tell, yeah. tell us how you managed to have like that that notion to even do that. Yeah. So it it, it was you know probably the biggest driver was my parents. Um, and and when I told them I wasn't going to go to college, just the the fear and concern on their side, uh, that was one part. Uh, the second for them to get comfort in what I was doing, they really pushed me to get financial help. Even though at that time when they were pushing me, I wasn't making any money really. Uh, they just wanted somebody helping me do that. And then I would say the third component and maybe the most powerful is I totally was bought into I was making a major life sacrifice by doing this because what I always envisioned my life being, I was probably going to say no to unless I really figure this thing out. And so I think that fear is what created the discipline, knowing that if I blew this, uh, I was going to feel it for the rest of my life. It was like a short-term gain for a long-term <laughs> uh, L. Yeah. And so uh, I, I, that was the big driving factor. Then when I got connected with the guy who I speak of, who, who really kind of mentored me through this, that's when I started you know, learning about some of the things I was doing. But without him, I wouldn't have even known what to do. I, I might have been disciplined in the sense of I'm not spending my money and I'm saving it. But I don't know if I would have moved past saving it. He was really the one that opened up the idea of financial freedom and what it really meant to get there. Yeah, I um, I don't think anything that I do now would have been self-evident to myself. Like we have to have those people in our narrative, in our story that kind of open our eyes, show us. the and, and like I've heard people talk about how just in our evolution coming from chimpanzees or whatever your personal beliefs are. But, you know, we we mirror each other. We mimic behaviors like we're really good at modeling. Right. We, mo we model speech. We model nonverbal communication. Right. And um, I think, you know, and like that's why I'm mentors and role models i know it sounds a little cheesy but they're critical like someone has to like model a behavior or show right. you a path where right. you don't you're not just going to think of this stuff on your own part partly why i even have this show give people new ideas I, I did a presentation at washington state university my brother teaches there and i was up there last weekend he's in the school of business and just throwing up like Robert Kiyosaki's cash flow quadrants, you know, uh, E S B I try to get to this side. Here's your, you know, like they had, there were four hands that went up out of 50 that had even seen that exhibit. And I was like, I, this is good. Like the earlier you can see these kind of notions, assets, liabilities, thinking about your future, thinking about your spending, which is not a sexy topic. You know, people like just gloss over. If you start talking about budgeting and personal finance, they get a little more excited for like your swing for the fences entrepreneurial pursuits, myself included. I mean, I, I get more excited about this deal. I just closed a couple of weeks ago than like right. skimming $200 a month off of like subscriptions that I don't need, but Hey, I try to treat them with equal enthusiasm. Um, yep. you know, but, but here That's you are, right. you know, the, I saw, you know, I saw in your, in your bio, this, this self-storage investment in 2005. I mean, what a, it's a kick-ass commercial asset class. Um, did, tell us how, how did you end up and what did that look like? This this 05 self storage, um, you know, soiree in, intro. So self storage came from uh, my mentor, who my my mom connected me with. His brother ran a storage portfolio, and you know, Randy, who, who's my mentor, when we were looking at what I was investing in, it, it I, I invested in storage a little bit after two thousand five, uh, but when we were looking at investing in real estate. In the beginning, I didn't have enough to get the, the challenge with real estate is barrier to entry is high. 
So there was a point where I had to start really stacking to be able to get the, the minimum investment in. But there were years where he would tell me about their self-storage business. And then when I got to the point where I was like, okay, it's go time. I didn't really know what questions to ask. I, I was really relying on him when he was going through kind of the educational moment of what they do, right? They they went after big box retail that was vacant. They would repurpose it into storage. I didn't even truly understand what went into that. The only thing I grasped at that time was something he said, and it was behavioral. It was, you know, think about you. Think about all the stuff you have. If I were to say, Mikey, you got get you have to get rid of uh, 80% of it tomorrow, would you do it? And I was like, no, I'd find somewhere to put it. He's like, bingo. So that is basically what happens. If you're ever going through a life cycle, you're typically viewing it as temporary. You need something to do with those with, with those things. If you're upgrading, you have like all this old stuff that means something to you. A lot of people don't want it just laying around in open sight, but they don't want to let go of it. And that I understood. I understood like hoarding or, or hanging on to things. And then when I heard the idea of like, you just build all these garages, you put your stuff in it, you charge, you know, uh, a, a rent or fee, and then you pay your expenses, you pay your debt, and then investors get the cash flow. There was something about that model where I went, I understand that. So then I invested and then I started seeing, they, they paid out quarterly. So I started seeing a quarterly dividend pump off this thing. And there was something so comforting in that. It was like, oh my gosh, this is, I understand this and it's working. And then the the view of how I wanted to achieve uh, financial freedom, specifically on the cash flow element or the dividend element, I really started leaning more towards real estate and and probably started moving away from maybe stocks and bonds or some of the mm-hmm. more conventional stuff I was doing. Uh, I loved it. I, I was all in on it. And then as it started, you know, everyone in here that's listening that invests in real estate. You go through your appreciation or your value add. There's a cash out refi and all of a sudden there's a distribution or there were so many kind of pops that would happen along the way. I, I don't want to make, say so many. It didn't happen every week. But when a pop would happen, it was like, ah, oh, here's my wealth build kind of moment. And then you just stick it back into the machine. And uh, it was cool. I, I just became all in on it. I really like the way you said that. And it's true. It's... um. I'll call it pop money sometimes on the show. And whether you're in, because I do, my my core background is legal brokerage and appraisal. At the moment, I'm pretty much a 100% investor. I do a little bit of niche service and brokerage work, but almost all investments. So, but my point is like the brokerage world has pop money. The legal world, unless you're doing like um, eminent domain or personal injury, it generally doesn't. So yeah. I actually found the brokerage of all things to somewhat train me to get used to pop and hold, pop mm-hmm. and hold. I heard somebody call that hang time, like that mm-hmm. period. And like, if you don't have enough hang time, like you'll just quite literally just crash. And yeah. so, or you ride two horses or three or whatever, because you got something that keeps the lights on and then something that pops and then you have your hang time. And um, it's really a delicate balance. I think that's one of the hardest things to get used to as an investor. If you're going to go kind of full time with it is like, how do I manage pop and hang time? And if I, if those hang times are too unpredictable, can I can I add something in between that's like service oriented um, that would give me like some steady cash flow? Um, right. right. How did it's kind of a nuanced question, but so you went from you you know few years there professional skating. How did you end up jumping in as an investor? Um, and maybe this is too narrow of a question, but you have 
you know, I don't know if it was a syndication or what that deal looked like, but you know, how'd you get, um, how'd you get yourself into that first storage deal? I think some people might be curious. Yeah. So the first, uh, the first deal, it was not a syndication. It was actually a fund, uh, that I went into. It was an open, it was an open ended fund, uh, which, uh, I'll just explain it for for those that don't know, Uh, a syndication, basically you're investing in one deal and, and that is it in that deal. Uh, a fund, typically you're investing in multiple deals, although nowadays it doesn't have to be that way, but usually you're investing in multiple deals. And if it's closed-ended, there's a window in which you're raising money, they close it, and that's it. An open-ended fund, basically, it, it, it I don't want to say it operates more like a public REIT, but think of it through the lens of they're always growing it, and there's typically openings to come into that fund throughout a long period of time. For that fund, though, it wasn't always open. There'd be moments where it was open, they'd close it. Then when they need more capital because they'd have more deals, then it would open again. Uh, that was basically my entry in. Uh, I started investing completely passively because I was focusing on skateboarding back then. Um, and so my model was focus on the thing that can earn me the most and then take that money and put it in the things that could work. It was It was just a very simple system. So then there was storage. After storage, uh, the, the same group started a debt fund. So then I was uh, participating in investment that was lending on commercial assets. And that sparked off pure cash flow for me. And then the storage was like a, a growth plus cash flow, but it was more focused on growth. I have, um, I'm currently seller financing. So I bought, repositioned hmm. and sold a property really quickly, like six weeks, like bought it, knocked down the grass, did a trash out, put it up for sale, sold it. And uh, I was like, ooh, um, it's too short to 1031. You're supposed to have a year um, to 1031 something. I was like, man, that's a really quick flip. And uh, I just didn't want to get slapped by the tax man. So I ended up I ended up putting it up on the market and looking for a, the, it ended up being the right buyer. The right buyer is going to be top, uh, top price and wanted the seller financing I took a really good down payment and I've been taking those checks. Uh, one came in yesterday. And to your point, the the actual lending of money side, when you just open up, you just open the envelope, you're like, wow, this is definitely got to be like the highest on the, on the passive side. Um, right. You know, it's, 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 it's really beautiful. And, and sometimes I know like in the, in the debt funds, you can hit some really good returns. Even like in my case, the return, I sell our finance before rates really jump. So I got, Six percent at a time when he could have gone and got like three and a half, um, right. but that's just an example. Usually, your seller financing, you know, a lot of times you're getting like an above average rate, and um, I already had a really good margin in the flip, and with the payments he's made for the past coming up on twenty four months, there's like uh, an extra thirty grand in the deal. It wasn't a huge deal, but it's still it's right. one of those things where it adds cream, and then I don't have the big tax hit from being all being in one year. So, right. um, but just to your point, I love the the banking side can be overlooked. And I think people are sometimes a little too hesitant about seller financing. I think if you take a good enough down payment, you have a borrower with a track record. I mean, I know I'll, I'll speak for myself. The way I sold mine, if I had to take it back through foreclosure, no problem. I've got right. I've got a great down payment. I can easily recover the property and do it all over again. Plus I knew he was about to do a big value add investment. So the property was me better uh, when I get it back. So, right. Yeah, that's, that's something that we... I, I, there's some deals that we put together that are maybe more creative than others, but uh, you know, like if anybody listens to or has heard Pace uh, talk about, you know, creative financing or 
that world is fascinating. I don't have much experience in it though. It's not typically how we structure our deals, but I think it's awesome. I think it's really cool when you do it right. I think one, and I, I know, I think with the creative finance side and the assignments for a fee, um, taking over subject to, um, I think in commercial, there's a lot of creative in commercial. I think a lot of the, I feel like a lot of the creative in commercial happens like on the equity side versus, That's right. versus That's like, the, like the model and I'm, I'll call them pace, even though we're not friends. Um, you know, like on the, on like the, the, the pace side is like a lot of that is working, you know, you're taking over a contract, you're taking over a debt, you're working with a seller to leave. Maybe you leave the seller in the property for a little while, or here's some cash to leave. I'll take over your, I'll assume your loan. Um, not right. all, not all loans are assumable. You see a little bit of that. Like you probably know, like in multifamily, most of your government sponsored multifamily loans are assumable. So those are really common. I have a multi, I have an assumable multifamily loan in Georgia. Um, you know, and somebody who bought that property from property from us probably would try to assume it um, because it's at 3.5 right now. But I think a lot of the creativity comes in, like, for example, not uncommon. Uh, I did seven years of title and escrow. I saw a lot of commercial closings and not uncommon in commercial for a seller to hold something, maybe even off the books, maybe unrecorded. So let's say the LTV, the bank will give you is like 70% and the buyer and seller are getting close on their numbers and the, and they propose, okay, well, will you hold 10% of the purchase price over here? And there's mm -hmm. different ways to collateralize it without recording a second mortgage because sometimes lenders won't let you record a second, at least not at closing. Yep. Well, that, that can make a huge difference. You go from a 70 to an 80 LTV, maybe you even go higher. Um, so there's definitely some. And then, of course, in the capital stack, as you know, between LP structures and mezzanine loans and wraparounds, yep. and it, there's, a, there's a, a lot of creativity. I, I think with all this ramble, what I'm getting at is don't feel like the absence of your own personal capital mm. uh, should stop you from doing deals. I think that's where... Mm -hmm. I joined um, I joined Hunter Thompson's capital raising mastermind in the fall and I've been enjoying it. And I think the resounding thing that I hear, I think there's like two, 300 people in that mastermind. And I went to the January event in Kentucky, but it's this mindset shift to like, okay, if you can identify a quality deal with good margins and good returns, you know, to be confirmed and vetted and everything, try to just erase it from your mind that this deal can't be done because you don't have the money. Right. Um, more of that, more of that who, not how. That's right. Yep. That's very, very well said and very true. I think that, um, and it's, you know, I know, we're, like I said before, we're very similar and very similar in age. And I think it probably took me, I might, <laughs> it might've been pretty recently that I really, like, I think I always conceptually believed it. Um, but I think to really walk the walk is, is more recent for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That one, uh, I think most of us are, are trained that way. I, I think that's something that, that the majority of us have to overcome. Uh, when we started the brewery, that, that was one thing for us. We just didn't have the money to do it and really wanted to. So that was when we first got introduced to raising capital. Once it, once you do it for the first time, then I think it, it changes your perspective. You start learning how to bring other people in or what they say, use other people's money. But that first switch to it is it's it's a big jump. It's a really big jump. So with the St. Archer Brewing Company, um, where was that located or where is San, it? San Diego. In San Diego. Um, I could go on. I'm not going to spend any time on that. I wanted to go to either San Diego State or USD because I, I went to Gonzaga 
for high school mm-hmm. at Gonzaga, Gonzaga prep and um, in Spokane. So I was like, Oh, San Diego is perfect. I wanted to do San Diego or Hawaii because they had this um, wooey program. It was um, you get in-state tuition in Hawaii, I think Alaska, no, not San Diego. So I wanted to go down there. I wanted to be like a cool Southern California guy and living in Jacksonville. This might irritate some of my Jacksonville locals, but like San Diego is just cool. You know, it's like everyone's got like the cool vans and surfboards and the lifestyle, whether they're really living it or not, you know, but you come over here and like, I love our beach communities here, but I feel like, like the coolest guy in in Neptune beach is still like, like an average dude in San Diego. Right. Um, Right. So, but I know I've heard San Diego has an incredible uh, craft brewery scene. I kind of want to take a trip with the family and do a little surfing and, uh, and check that out. It's really cool. It's basically the Mecca of craft beer. It's, it's awesome. Were you always uh, a craft beer guy or did, I mean, I assume you wouldn't have got into the brewery space unless you were, had some passion uh, there. Well, it, it, the answer is yes and no. Uh, I would say it was more of an opportunity um, you know, we drank, we, the, where I was on it, I wasn't ever at the point where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so into beer that I want to brew my own beer and I'm going to brew it in my garage. And then kind of the typical evolution of it, mm-hmm. uh, we enjoyed beer. And it was at the time where craft beer started moving its way into, uh, we, we call it the mainstream, but it started touching the mainstream. Um, that was basically it. Uh, we just saw that there was a huge opportunity here. We liked it, and we thought we had something that we could introduce, ultimately a a red ocean scenario and move it into blue with how we were looking at building the brand and marketing it, et cetera. Uh, But no, I was never like a a beer connoisseur at all. I think my friends that are beer connoisseurs and brewing in their garage, uh, I think they lack the side that you just referenced. I don't see them them, uh, moving their Huckleberry IPAs into into any location soon. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's been like peer pressure to drink that guy's, you know, homebrew. And you're just like, okay, <laughs> okay I'll, I'll take a swig. And then I'm going to have to go to the bathroom and <laughs> right. dump it down the sink. Um, That's right. That's right. The, um, I feel like I had more on that whole brewery angle, but I mean, I, I am a craft beer guy. I don't know. I've always, I've always liked it. Um, I've cut way back on it in the past like six months because it just was like, making all of a sudden at like right at age 40, it was like all of a sudden craft beer just was like making me gain weight. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have to like cut down. I was, I was like, Oh, I like to have a couple of craft beers after work, you know, during the week and stuff. And, I was, and my wife's like, have you ever looked at the calories on these things? And I was right. like, well, I was like, why would I? And yeah. so I think I was drinking, um, Lagunitas little something. Yeah. And we like, I don't know if it's true or not, but we Googled. And the first one that showed up is like the can I was drinking was like, almost 300 calories, like 270 or two. And I was like, and of course you never have just one. And so my wife's like, you realize like these beers, you're, you're drinking like half your daily calories on right. these beers. So I had to, I had to kind of back it down a little bit. Yeah. I got to that age. We're at the same age where I have to start paying attention to what I eat and drink. It's, it's fun. Everyone who's not here yet. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The future is, the future is bright. The future is yeah, bright. That's right. Um, well, the um, so you get bought out by Miller Coors in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that must have felt absolutely phenomenal. Um, and, you know, I'm, I just imagined like to have your because you had the concept, you knew what you wanted to do, you even did it as an entrepreneur, not just as like a beer lover. Right. You get bought out, and it and it lets you start Commune Capital. I see the sweatshirt you're wearing today. So, um, 
talk about that. Talk about Commune Capital. If I'm saying it correctly, hopefully, yeah, yeah, Commune yeah. Capital and uh, what you guys have going on and just kind of that evolution from selling the brewery and and moving into yep. your capital company. So uh, selling the co- it was bittersweet selling it. it. It what was awesome was when we were out raising money, we had never done this before. So we went to friends and family primarily. And so my dad, my dad and mom were invested. My in-laws were invested. My aunt, uncle were invested. I mean, people I grew up with. And so to be able to call them and go, we did it right. We, and, and it was three years. We 12 X our investors investment. It was an awesome day. So like oh, those phone calls, giving those checks out, like the hugs, the tears, you know, my dad calling me, I paid off my house. It was, that part was by far awesome. Um, what was challenging about it is you you treat your business like like a child. Like it, it, it consumes so much of your time. You, you really do put your kind of blood, sweat and tears into it. And you, you know, sacrifice a lot on the other end to do this. When you give it over to someone else to then control it, it's not easy. There is a part of it that is difficult. Um, that part didn't love. The other part absolutely loved it. Um, so that was that was a good experience. Moving into starting this company, I had two partners in Commune, Paul Rodriguez and Josh Landon. Uh, Paul Rodriguez is basically the Kobe Bryant of skateboarding. Like it, he's the best and was kind of more like Jay-Z, uh, minded when it came to it. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to own everything I'm doing. Right. And then he had a company called primitive that really started taking off. So when we sold, Paul was, was focusing on a skate career, really building his primitive brand. Josh, uh, stayed in the beverage industry. So Josh went off and created a seltzer brand and a beer brand and built this kind of empire in beverage and then I went into private equity, but it took me a year to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, I, I wasn't, I didn't just sell St. Archer and go, this is next. When I landed on a capital company, it was really me looking back over the last 20 years and trying to, you know, find all these key moments in my life that put me into the position I was in today. And a big one was, you know, mentor coming into my life educating me on 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 how money works and then the plug into investing in some of these assets. And so I wanted to create a company that that did both of that where you could invest with us and it was going to be an investment that I really could count on and then also there was going to be a an education component to it. Mm-hmm. And so I landed on 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 private equity firm. I wanted to focus on real estate and at that time I was really into multifamily, that that was going to be the launch of our first portfolio was going to be hyper-focused on the multifamily asset class. And so I built my business plan. I started reaching out to people. I started building the team. We found the first project. We went out, raised money, we launched it. And then uh, what has felt like a very, very big grind over the last five years has gotten us to this point today. That's awesome. Um, How have you... It's it's interesting how you came into it, and um, so for me, I'm just I have to do these parallels to help my mind wrap around. Yep, yep. I came I came from like a brokerage, legal, and appraisal, and I was like, man, I'm just doing a lot of I call it service work. I'm doing a lot of service and fee work, and I'm helping my clients make a lot of money, which never bothered me. It only bothered me when I would have when I would have to fill out a personal financial statement for like a commercial loan. I was like, oh, 
I was like, you know, I'm, I'm getting by, but I'm like, my clients have the big PFS and mine looks like it, you know, just throw it in the recycling. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, I've got to move this net worth needle. Oh, I'm going to use that again, the net worth needle. And, um, and I was like, I've got to get equity positions and deals. I've got to, st-. and I, I say this sometimes, I literally started trading my client's name out as the buyer. I'm writing the contract anyways. If I like the deal and it underwrites, I'm like, it's going to be my name or my entity and, and I'm going to figure it out from there. And that was, a, that was a critical move. As you went into apartments and I know self-storage, I kind of understand how you had an eye for self-storage be, because of that early mentorship. Um the question I'm getting at is how did you obtain like an eye for what you wanted to buy? Um, mm. And, or maybe a partner helped you out, or maybe there was some coaching. Um, mm. But I think that's a relevant question for those. So some people hear my story, they're like, well, well, Ian, you just came from being a real estate service provider to just doing it for yourself. You, I think it's a little more interesting. You, you jump from, you know, professional skateboarding, not a traditional undergrad experience. And then boom, here you are, you know, right. kicking ass. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So what I'll start by saying, I think this will be good for the audience. I think most people in our industry are are more similar to your story. It's they're in the industry, they're making money, but they're watching or doing business with others and seeing how they're doing it. And they go, wait a minute, there's nothing that stops me from doing what you're doing. I'm actually the gatekeeper in some regard. I'm going to participate on that side. I see that a lot in the beginning. That was an insecurity for me uh, coming in the way I did. Uh, I came into real estate the same exact way we came into beer. Like when you asked me about, uh, you know, was I a beer nerd? Was I a beer connoisseur? I wasn't. I was more entrepreneurial and liked beer. And ultimately, we built a team and a brand around the product. Uh, that is how I go at basically business. Uh, same thing happened with multifamily. I invested in the asset class, but I invested passively. I was not the expert like you. I would rely on the team around me to provide these basically investments. And then, you know, I would maybe do my due diligence, but by and large, they were the, the ones doing everything. When I mm-hmm. went to start this company, it was through the lens of, I have the idea, I have the vision, this is what I want to accomplish. Now, how do I build it out? And so my first run was, and thankfully I got to the point where I knew what my skills were, I am not an operator. I am, I am not the person that is going to keep the group together and efficiently moving forward. I'm the one who has the ideas. I can get people basically to rally behind that idea. And I could freaking you know, create a lot of energy moving forward, but it's wild energy. I need kind of the person to keep us focused. So that is always my first go. I have to have a COO. First and foremost, that's the first look. And then I just started looking at all the other pieces I need to needed to bring into the pie to then basically have a successful business. Uh, in that, though, there was an education component. Uh, my view on education, I don't need to be the master at it. I need to understand things at a high level. So when we started looking at apartments, it was, where do I want to buy? I, I, I knew location-wise what I wanted to do. And I knew finished product was what I wanted to do. Uh, Other than that, there there was probably a year where I was consuming as much as I could. But the blessing was I was also able to consume off the people that I was bringing in that had a long, long track record of experience, 30 plus years. Mm -hmm. So with all that said, I'm a believer in knowing what you are good at, 
bringing the team together and you collectively accomplishing what it is you're setting off to do, as opposed to me feeling like I need to understand every single aspect of the business. I guess it's more of a Henry Ford uh, kind of view of building. Thank you. And that was a damn good answer. And I think there's a couple of things I want to tease out of that. One is self-awareness. Clearly by that answer, you have spent some time or through trial and error, you have become very self-aware. For me, it was more trial and error. I've like totally embraced like personality assessments. I did the Clifton Strengths one through Gallup. You know, a lot of people have done 16 personalities or DISC or whatever. Guys, if you're not doing these, do them. Um, there's something really insightful and humbling and honest about this isn't like a counselor where you can look across the couch and they tell you something about yourself and you're like bs you don't know me but when you take a neutral assessment and you read especially if you take a few of them start to look at your strengths i mean mikey's saying you know ideas momentum vision all these things these are like core personality characteristics that obviously you know you have and i feel like it would have been if you didn't know that about yourself it would have been super tempting to try to be the operator or the COO, the underwriter. You're, you know, you're in Excel spreadsheets, you're writing offers, you're losing your mind, you're talking to bankers, you're juggling vendors, and you're like, this is not me. And the big reason why I think this is so important is the everyone says journey. I think it's the right word, but this journey that we're on is a, it can be a long one and it's going to have ups and downs. If you don't have self-awareness and you don't work in your core competency that fulfills you, you're going to burn out or be miserable. I mean, some people are so gritty, they won't burn out. They'll just be unhappy forever. Um, so I, I just think that's a really critical takeaway. Even if you're not a real estate person, work in your core competency. And, you know, you mentioned Henry Ford. Um, I think Rocket Fuel is a good book. Who Not How, some of these ones. But they they essentially break the world into visionaries and integrators. Right. And, uh, and and clearly, you know, you're a visionary. I'm sure you score real high on that quiz in the book. Um, I did. Yeah, I, 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 I am didn't. not. I am not an integrator. So for I'm just going to kind of add a couple of things onto what you just said, because it, it it's it's very valuable and you, you nailed it all. For me, it was a combination between experience and learning this thing about me and personality tests. Like the first personality I test, I was so blown away. This is actually a cool story. Uh, Rob Dyrdek, uh he was a huge pro skateboarder, the most successful reality uh, personality in basically TV history, created a massive, massive uh, venture capital studio. I mean, he is he is one of the gnarliest human beings I have ever known. Very influential in my life. He started uh, Deerdick Machine, which is his venture arm. And he's really big on everything we're talking about, maximizing efficiency and putting people into their basically purpose or their gift, right? And the second they lean out of that, get them right back. And so I heard about this test that he did to all of his employees to make sure he was building the most sound team and putting people in all the right places, right? It was an insight test. And his president is the one who was telling me the story that he did his personality test. The person did a two-hour debrief with him, and it freaked him out because he felt like the person debriefing him knew more about him than he knew himself, right? And I'm like, Brian, how do I get this test? I, I got to do this, right? And he's like, I got you. So then all of a sudden, I get Mikey Mikey Taylor from Deerdick you know, Machine, <laughs> and I did this test. And I did the two-hour debrief, and it was the same experience. It was like, oh, my gosh. 
you basically know why I make every decision I make. But what was beneficial about it, and this is why I think it's equally as important. It started talking about all the people that I, that have a hard time with my personality. So I will say things that I think are, uh, I'm articulating well, this kind of goes into the love language conversation, but how the person next to me with the different personality is interpreting that is negative. And there's actually friction and uh, challenge due to that. So it starts basically teaching you how your personality needs to communicate with the different personality that's working with you so that you guys can create a, uh, a good partnership that actually progresses forward. That was so valuable for me uh, because it's one thing like bringing talents in, but like having to learn how to work with those talents is another learned skill. Mm -hmm. uh, personality tests were great though. I, 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 that, that was huge for me. Yeah. My, um, I have three younger brothers and I think everybody's been in and out of like, you know, little counseling here and there. And um, we had some trauma when my dad died over 10 years ago and we, everybody was a little bit young to be losing their dad. And I never, I, I must confess, I actually did not go to counseling and maybe I, maybe I should have. And I just kind of like stuck my head down, went to law school, did my title in escrow and brokerage and appraisal. I just like wanted to work, work, work and get my degrees. And, um, and in some ways that didn't serve me very well. Cause I, I just like skipped the introspective side. I was like, mm. I'll just like grind it. And, um, and that's totally contrary to the, now I take personality tests and I reflect on like essentially what I like. I like this. I mean, I like talking to guys like you. It, it makes me feel like I've, I'm, I got five more years in the tank after conversations like this. And what I realized is I spent probably a decade like outside of my core uh, personality competency and so although I'm a certified general appraiser, an attorney and a title in escrow, running an escrow account, doing closing statements, um, running cash flows, like those are all great for what I do. They were also way outside of my personality profile. Right. So it's it's a funny thing to reflect on because I'm glad I have it. There's no way in hell starting like now fresh. If I was coming from an outside industry, I would I would not even enter that. I would do exactly what you're talking about. I would... I would find my team. I would who not how that thing and and uh, and get out of my own way and be happier. Um, I, I really I enjoy working in I'll call it real estate and investments more now than ever, and it's okay. largely due to what we just talked about. It's just align. It's just alignment of, of yep. personality and how you're spending your time. That's right. That's absolutely right. And um, just ta no. touching on this because I had to learn this one too. Uh, if you're someone like us, because I'm the same way, and you know, when there's trauma or stress or anything in your life, you basically move into working or uh, not having to deal with the emotion and distracting yourself into work, which is definitely what, what I did for a long time. Here comes the challenge and why I would recommend everyone moving out of this cycle. Uh, and it's going to sound a, a little bit kind of, what would you say, mindset-y or a little bit woofy, but it is absolutely true. If you don't get the emotion or the, the the trauma that you're holding out of your body, it will build up and your body will actually start shutting down. So if if we're all in this game for longevity, right? The only thing that we want to avoid is burnout. To do that, you need to make sure that you're always putting yourself in a position to manage stress because building anything is stressful. And if you're hanging on to issues and not dealing with them, you're getting closer and closer to your max limit of what you can handle. And then you're going to break. And then you're going to get taken out of the game. 
and then it's going to take you a lot longer to get back in. Avoid that. So don't look at it as, oh, this is new age and I need to you know, talk about my feelings. Look at it as you're here to succeed for a long time. If you don't get this crap out of you, it's going to stop that from happening. Well said. Well said. The, um, the mastermind I'm in again, some of the stuff sounds a little bit like pep rally and cheesy, yeah. but you know, like, Hey, we did the work, we did the grind. So I don't mind layering on some of this mindset stuff. And right. one thing that was said that kind of stuck with me and, and honestly, it's, it's going to sound a little cheesy to some people, but it's the entrepreneur's job to maintain an invincible mindset. And that was the word invincible. And what that means is you need to do whatever it takes to maintain an invincible mindset because what we're doing will try to chop you down. It will, and it'll get you some days. You will be chopped down some days. And what, and in my opinion, this all ties together by doing what you're good at and fulfilled by that are in your passions within the team. That's going to make you feel invincible. A, you're better at it and you can lead with it or serve with it. And um, it's, you won't feel real invincible when you're working outside of your core competency for 10 years. Uh, you're probably going to want to quit. <laughs> right. That's absolutely right. hundred percent. Um, I like to talk, do you want to jump into maybe some of the types of types of deals commune capital is doing now? Um, right. sure. maybe, maybe the location, what, like kind of how you like to put together your deals and then, um, and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, right now our, so we, we run, so the two asset classes we focus on storage and multifamily, uh, we have a debt portfolio that we just spun up just with everything going on with the Fed and interest rates and we us moving out of a yield-starved environment. But by and large, uh, multifamily is is the portfolio with uh, a lot of deal flow coming at us. That, that That's the thing that's changed for us over the last few years. Storage right now at the moment, we are sitting on a lot of cash. We are struggling to find deals that pencil. Uh, and so... Storage is, is on, uh, it's maintaining and we're doing our thing. We're looking for deals. Multifamily is what we're raising capital for right now. Uh, we are hyper-focused on California, which a lot of investors sit here and go, why? Uh, but our view, and, and we just spun up this new fund for this, California is difficult. Uh, our policy gets in the way of adding supply. And a lot of these, you know, a lot of these things like the mansion tax and the, all of these taxes drive investors out of California. But California is still so desirable and our supply is so far below demand that we like the idea of helping get that supply higher to that demand. And we like the idea that all the difficulties in California keep competition out, which mm -hmm. drives our prices up. So we are hyper-focused on California we're looking for things that we can repurpose or redevelop. Right now, our two new projects are redevelopment plays. Repurposing is a little bit trickier, uh, but I think the new asset that's going to open up for us here is going to be office into multifamily. Uh, and so that's basically what we're doing. Uh, we're in the middle of a capital raise. Uh, our next project in San Diego is targeted to close in about three weeks. And then we have another one following in Ventura. And then we have one in Redondo Beach under contract. Well, congratulations. That's a full pipeline. It's, um, we have a pipeline right now. And, and that's uh, that's something unique to kind of the multifamily side. Storage, two years ago, pipeline opened up for us and then kind of slowed down. Yeah, a couple of follow-up questions. So the the storage, I assume these are um, in-place facilities, like uh, not ground up? 
Uh, really good question. No, they're not. We, we on the storage side were basically focusing on Bed Bath and Beyonds, Walmart's, Kmart's that go vacant, and then coming in and scraping the inside, repurposing it, and filling them with storage. That's primarily what we're looking for. But we also have two development projects in our portfolio. We do not typically buy uh, stabilized storage, but that may come into play here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. We're, we're sitting on too much cash right now. Uh, we're looking at potentially coming in and gobbling something up. As you know, the debt uh, market is a little bit interesting right now on stabilized products. So I, I'm assuming that might be a all cash purchase if we end up going that way. But we're looking for repurposing uh, opportunity. I've seen people do those um, big box repurposing to storage. I've never been involved in one. Um, just out of curiosity, does it usually become a three-story interior product? I guess it depends on your ceiling clearance, but um, it, yeah. What do you got? It depends, but it's typically two. Okay, typically two. When you're repurposing, the, the challenge is, is actually not so much deal flow. It's it's cities. It's it's Most cities, by and large, do not want storage and they definitely don't want it in what used to be a, a retail anchor. Uh, and so that becomes a, a challenge for us. A lot of these deals we're working on, you're working on for years, uh, they'll they'll die. And then a year later, two years later, they'll come back to life. It, it it's, a, it's a difficult process, but when you do it, it's awesome. It, it's really cool. Yeah, the um, I would love to do one of those. I have a colleague that's built three interior corridor self-storage ground up deals in Jacksonville. And they usually model a two-year like lease-up period with six to seven hundred plus units. But once I saw his cash flows, once those things stabilize, oh my God, those net operating income ratios are beautiful. Yeah. Um, I can't remember which franchise they tend to use, but um, they give you the general manager. The general manager is trained. I mean, it almost feels like you're just. It's like a. Tur- it's better than a franchise because it's just it's like turnkey operation. And yeah. Uh, yep. Yep, that's right. Coming, coming from the multifamily space, which as we both talked about, we've both done multifamily and you are doing multifamily. God bless multifamily. It's made it's it's made us both money. I love multifamily. It is it is asset management intensive. It is it is also management intensive. And um, if I mean if you could pull off some of these other deals, it, it can be beautiful. I've been looking at I've been looking at boat and RV storage yards in Florida because we have all of these. It, the zoning is narrow for it, at least where I am. And we have thousands and thousands of housing units coming online. And almost universally, you're not allowed to park your boat and RV in the right. new subdivisions. So, right. um, but to your point, I love the creative outside the box stuff you were doing with that. So Yeah, it, it, it's it's cool. Now, you're, you're right. The, you know, storage can become a cash machine. They take longer to stabilize than, than multifamily does, uh, which... You know, depending on the investor, is if you're preparing them for that, you, you can overcome that hurdle. But when they're on, they're on. Uh, multifamily, though, there's for a personality like me, there's more control over experience and and vibe and making it special. Mm-hmm. Uh, that part I like about multifamily. You're, you're talking about people's homes, so uh, there's it's like anything. There's pros and cons to all of this, mm-hmm. but I enjoy both. I, I I really do like both asset classes. Is there anything you you know you have a unique Story, unique background, unique perspective. Anything you're doing with your multifamily projects that, to your knowledge, is is uncommon. Uh, you know, because you have a, you have a little bit different lens you're looking through. So you know, you change change the vibe. Um, and I can think of I can think of some creative ways there you change a multifamily vibe. I've never been fortunate enough to own multifamily that really 
that there was a lot of vibe work. I was more like in your, in your kind of right. C, C minus class. Well, what, what kind of stuff right. do you like to do? Right. So I would say there's something we're doing very different on, on how we bring on investors. But as far as like the product goes, uh, how we look at a lot of, a lot of these apartments is like, can we create a, a, let me, let me think how I can say this the correct way. Can we create a place that offers what the Gen Z or, or, maybe the lower end millennial generation are looking for that most real estate investors would not think of, right? Like in my perspective, especially Gen Z, these are content creators from birth, right? Even if they're not influencers and have a following, they grew up <clears throat> with their phone and social media is a part of their daily life, right? And so little things that that maybe some of our competitors wouldn't think of, like what does the background look like, like every time a tenant picks up their phone to film them? And can you create an environment that has a studio-esque like environment? So it's great for content creation, right? Something we did on an apartment that we just sold in Long Beach, actually. We had a uh, artist come out. His name's Mark Oblo. Really, really phenomenal artist, but he's hot on like a like New York, LA, Japan, like the core scene. He is beyond influential, right? Mark. Can you come create a massive piece on the whole side of our building? Yeah, I could totally do that. What do you want? Well, let's. T I, I, I want you to help curate this thing. This, this apartment represents this. It's in Long Beach. We're building community. It's an all-together environment. He builds out this whole piece, right? Then we create a whole mini documentary on him and these, the piece he's building. Then you market that to the tenants. And then it becomes a staple of the apartment. And then like we were talking about before, tenants are filming content with the art piece in the background. It's now adding value to the tenant because they can create content makes it look cool. It's adding value to the artist that we just created and creates a story around the apartment as a whole. That's basically what you're trying to do. How can I create stories around what we're building? Uh, one of the new projects that we're doing in Ventura, it's got retail below. So we, we get 6,000 feet below. Uh, I believe it's a four, 42 unit build. Uh, that gives you an opportunity to really curate experience when you can control what retail goes in and coming from my past life in, you know, beverage. And then even with skateboarding, you're building brands. Uh, that is one way that I think we're going to be able to strategically place the right retail that really complements not only the tenants, but the total project that we're building, uh, it, it, your brand building. Anytime you can look at as, as at an apartment as a brand, you're, you're gonna you're gonna build something special. Considering you know how to build brands, that's brilliant. That's awesome. I never expected that answer. It makes total sense as you say it, and um, kind of makes me want to think twice about about rebranding. You know, and you know uh, what? I'll, you know. I'll give everyone a hit right here too because this is something we're testing. I think it's going to be great. Uh, a new apartment that we're building. Uh, it's about ninety units. Overlooks the water. We're like. 400 feet from the water, right? Stunning in Ventura. Uh, when we were pitching it to investors, we came up with this idea of like, what if we leave one unit fully furnished and that is available to the investors that come into this deal? They get to use it for a week out of the year, however we do it, right? And, you know, our company has to pay that fee, the, the rent that we would charge the company pays. But I was like, I think our investors would love this. When we were out pitching, that's what everyone talked about. Wait a minute. I get to have a unit on the beach overlooking the waterfront. Yes. I'm, it became a, a story point. Uh, 
find ways if possible to do stuff like that. That was a huge success for us. Oh man, that's wonderful. I, uh, you've inspired me to do new and creative things. That's really, really clever. Um, all right, let's talk about some resources, things that you like to consume, maybe a couple, uh, if it's a book, a podcast, um, what do you like to listen to or consume to kind of get your mind right? Uh, okay, so there's uh, there's books that I read early on that were really important in building the foundation. So if, if this is the beginning of somebody's, let's call it journey into finance or real estate investing, uh, the books that were huge for me, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that was the, the gateway drug for me. Richest Man in Babylon was great for kind of the money management or, or discipline, intelligent investor, set for life. If you haven't read that book, it's a phenomenal real estate book. Uh, today, I get, you know, as far as like podcasts or, or books that I'm reading, I tend to cycle from being podcast heavy and then I'm off podcast and I'm I'm book heavy. Right now, I'm more podcast heavy. And the, a lot of the podcasts that I'm listening to right now are more, uh, it's economics or or more of the political world right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I ran for city council in my area and and I I I won, so I'm now a council member at Thousand Oaks. So that's congratulations. Kind of, uh, thank you. So I'm 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 in a, an early stage of uh, learning that side. So that's kind of where the consumption is lately. Uh, but some of the you know some of the apartments I or some of the podcasts I was on Lifetime Cashflow uh, with Rod Cleef last month in Florida. Uh, he's awesome. Really enjoy that podcast. Yeah, um, apartment building investing was, I think he changed the name, but um, Michael Blanc, mm-hmm. uh, he had a good podcast. Bigger Pockets is a phenomenal platform when it comes to real estate education. There's some some discords popping out right now that they, they have good communities going on with. Yeah, I think those are all very good resources. And, you know, as we kind of bring it to a close here, what would be some of your closing advice for these, for an eager entrepreneur, you know, kind of like a fundamental takeaway that, um, that you like to impart on, on that eager entrepreneur. Okay. That's a, that's a good one. So if you're the entrepreneur, uh, there's been a handful of things that were really good for me throughout my journey of the last 20 years. Um, one, I had to learn, uh, I had to start doing due diligence on the people around me and know that there were certain people in my life that were there for a certain reason and others that were not there for me to bounce business ideas off of. So make sure that when you're testing ideas or concepts, you're doing it to the right group. And if it's not to the right group, it doesn't mean that that person's a bad friend. It just means that they do not fulfill that purpose of, of, of breaking down concepts and things that you're trying to test before you do it. The next one, Entrepreneurs are typically overly optimistic by nature. You don't go build things that most people will tell you can't be done unless you are optimistic. And typically we have a lot of energy around it. Where I would challenge you all is make sure that you're taking that energy in this big macro idea and bringing it down into bite size uh, deliverables that you can accomplish and, and really lean into building a business plan. Most of us, including myself, do not want to build business plans. Every time I come up with a new idea, I do not want to build a business plan. But when I do, it focuses or forces me to go into what it's actually going to take to accomplish it and then start presenting it to people 
and let people break it apart until you have an actual plan that you can create action on. And once you're at that point, all you focus on is the step forward. That's all. Take a step forward. Uh, you build out that model, you're going to be great. That was killer. I'm not even going to try to add to it. Um, where can people find you, follow you, learn more about you, get into the Mikey Taylor ecosystem? So uh, you can go on any platform, uh, just search Mikey Taylor. I'm going to come up. Uh, I, I'm, I'm verified on some of these platforms. That doesn't matter anymore, <laughs> but uh, you should be able to follow at Instagram on Mikey Taylor, TikTok on Mikey Taylor, same with YouTube and then everything else. Awesome. Mikey, thanks for your time, man. Seriously, this was a really, really good episode. Ian, um, thank you. I appreciate the patience coming on as well. Oh, great. All right, everybody. Um, I hope you took as much from this as I did. This was a great interview with Mikey Taylor. Be sure to share this episode with a friend. Help us all grow together. It makes a huge difference. Share it, follow it. And we're on all the socials as well, at Yield Coach, Insta, Facebook, YouTube, everything. A little weak on TikTok, but it's there. And um, and we're trying to have some fun along the way. So shout out, DM, let, it, let us know what you think of everything. For now, that's a wrap on the show. And I'm your coach, Ian Brown, signing off and reminding everyone to lace up and leave it all on the field. Yield Coach, out.